content warning. The following episode includes discussion of crime and police brutality, including violence, injury, and death. Listener discretion is advised. On January 6, 1994, figure skater Nancy Kerrigan left the ice at Detroit's Cobo Hall after a practice skate. She was there for the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, which were only days away. Kerrigan was a favorite to take one of two spots on the U.S. Olympic team. The 1994 Winter Olympics were scheduled to take place in February. Kerrigan left the ice, covered her blades, and then walked behind the curtain, likely heading towards the locker room. Moments after she walked past the blue curtain, she was heard wailing. Since news crews were already at the arena to watch the competitors practice, cameras were rolling as Kerrigan was holding her knee with trainers and coaches surrounding her, trying to figure out what was wrong. She cried out, why, why me? The story went that she was accosted and attacked by a stranger who hit the top figure skater in the knee with a hard whip-like object, badly injuring her, and then disappeared into thin air. I remember watching the footage of the Nancy Kerrigan attack on local TV news as a 12-year-old girl living in Detroit. Well, this was national news. This was particularly big news where I live because this is where it happened. And it sucked. First of all, yes, it was very sad for Nancy Kerrigan. It really sucked for her because, of course, she was the one attacked. But I remember feeling like it sucked because the city of Detroit had the national reputation of being an extremely dangerous city. And even as a preteen, I was acutely aware of this. In addition, it sucked because, and, and I'm not sure if this description of the attacker was from Kerrigan herself or from others at the scene, but the initial reports on the local news stated that the suspect was a black male. Later, a witness stated that the attacker was not a black man, but a white man wearing a black leather coat. And over the course of several weeks, it was discovered that the attack was perpetrated by a team of three men acting on behalf of Jeff Galuli, then husband of rival figure skater Tanya Harding. All the people involved including the man who attacked Kerrigan with what turned out to be a retractable police baton, were white, and none were from Detroit. As a black American, there's this habit many of us tend to have, and it's something we develop pretty early on, of holding our breath when watching news stories of violent crime, waiting for the description of the suspect, hoping it's not a black person, and either cursing under our breath when it's one of us, or breathing a sigh of relief when it's not. And this isn't because we're rooting for criminals to be white or otherwise non-black. It's really not like that at all. But it's because of the stereotype of black Americans as inherently criminal. White Americans who are found to have committed criminal acts are often viewed as individuals who may have done bad things. Lone wolves, normies who fell in with the wrong crowd, or individuals who had bad childhoods and just needed a good therapist. When white people are suspects in crimes, they are often presented in the news media differently than suspects of other races and ethnic groups, such as Black, Latino, and Middle Eastern people. Black Americans who are found to have committed criminal acts aren't given the same individual treatment. They're not seen as good people who did or allegedly did bad things. Black people committing crimes are seen as typical. They have no fathers. They have single moms. Their role models are criminals. So of course, they turn out to be criminals. And the myth of inherent black criminality has been used to not extend the presumption of innocence to black Americans and to justify discriminatory actions, including excessive force by police and extrajudicial killing of unarmed and legally armed black men and women. If we're going to have a real conversation about race and about policing, we need to be given the same benefit of the doubt when it comes to our experiences that white Americans have always enjoyed. If we're going to have real improvement in race relations 
and not simply window dressing. We need to be able to tell the truth, even when it's uncomfortable for those who are used to being comfortable. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstar Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. This is going to be a two-part episode discussing policing in the United States. Today's episode will focus on how we think about policing, the history of policing in the United States, and some of the outcomes. The next episode, which will be released in about a couple weeks, will focus on the militarization of police and potential solutions, including some of the most controversial like calls to defund the police. During this time of national reckoning regarding race in places like Minneapolis, Atlanta, Chicago, and in the United States as a whole, I have seen a lot of Black Americans on social media share their experiences regarding policing and police brutality. And I say social media because as a Black American, I have family and friends who have had run-ins with the police. And while I have never been arrested personally, knock on wood, My personal experiences with police have varied somewhat wildly, and I'm a light-skinned black woman who doesn't have a lot of experience living in poor, over-policed neighborhoods, nor have I lived in neighborhoods openly hostile to black people. So there are plenty of black people who have had worse interactions with police than I have. But speaking for myself, this right here isn't a brand new conversation. Even on Potstarer Podcast, I've touched on policing and race in a number of episodes, including in the Detroit America series, the Urban Renewal series, and a multi-parter at the end of last year on the drug war. I haven't done a dedicated episode on policing or police brutality because it touches so many other topics. I mean, even if we talk about some of the places where I've discussed here on the podcast, I've discussed police brutality in light of the history of race relations in my hometown of Detroit, Michigan because policing and police brutality play a major role in the city's history and some of the issues it has faced. I've discussed it as part of the backdrop of the Urban Renewal series, as police brutality incidents, particularly the murder of Timothy Thomas, were part of what led to the eventual gentrification of Cincinnati's over-the-Rhine neighborhood. The Drug War series essentially tells the story of how racial disparities arose in the way drug laws in the United States were developed and executed, and law enforcement and its ill treatment of black Americans is a huge part of that. There's even a video I released early on in the podcast as a YouTube exclusive, focusing on the murder of Philando Castile, a legally armed black man, at the hands of police, which included criticism of the National Rifle Association's unwillingness to speak out on the murder of a man who was exercising his Second Amendment rights. I say all this because I've always felt that this topic was too big to just do an episode about it and call it a day. And when I say that, it's not as a criticism of other podcasters and content creators who have released episodes or statements opposing police brutality and supporting Black Lives Matter. Not at all. People of all races coming out and discussing this issue, especially if it hasn't been a topic they've typically discussed, is immensely important. It's just that with this particular podcast, The discussion of current events, political issues, and historical context includes the discussion of institutions and systematic practices that play a part in all of that. And policing is such a huge part of that, and its tentacles are in so many aspects of American life. The challenge with discussing police brutality is that we can't discuss police brutality without discussing policing itself. And this is where, at least in my experience, there's a huge disconnect. And that disconnect has little to do with facts and more to do with culture and worldview based on life experience. And a lot of that life experience is based on class and especially race. The beliefs of many Americans in regards to race and policing seem to be governed by the just world hypothesis, the belief that in general, the world is fair. Good people have good things happen to them. If you have bad things happen to you, You brought it on yourself in some way. 
This belief functions as a way for people to maintain comfort with the status quo. If they see the status quo as unjust, doing nothing about that unjust world would, in their minds, make them bad people. Anyone can hold the belief in a just world, but it's a lot easier to hold that belief if your place in the cultural hierarchy is relatively high, or at least average. But if your life is full of things happening to yourself, family members, or friends, and the behavior of you or people you know isn't any worse than those with overall positive experiences, it becomes a lot harder to hold on to the belief in a just world. People who believe in a just world often find ways that individuals with negative experiences with institutions could have made better choices as opposed to dealing with the alternative that the powerful systems that bring you a relatively comfortable existence are actively harming others. It's at the root of blaming black men and other men of color for racial discrimination against them in employment, at places like restaurants and nightclubs, and in policing. If they didn't have dreadlocks, if they didn't wear hoodies, white t-shirts, or sagging pants, if their parents named them Scott or Brock instead of Carlos or Javon, they'd get hired, they'd be allowed into our establishment, they wouldn't be stopped and frisked. Without life experience to be told that the institutions we live with on a daily basis, including the police, are unjust, it's easy for people to come to the conclusion that those who levy heavy criticism of the police are anti-cop and pro-criminal. Over the years, in conversations I've had with white and other non-black Americans regarding policing, there are two responses I hear most often when pointed criticism is levied, especially by black Americans, of police or policing. I'll discuss the most defensive response first, and why I'm doing that will soon make sense. Number one, you don't trust police? The next time you need them, don't call them. This response seems to be rooted in the idea that police protect and serve all of us who are law-abiding citizens against those who wish to do harm. And that point of view typically comes from what we're taught culturally and the overwhelmingly positive experiences most who make that statement have with police. Police officers are often portrayed as the good guys, the people we should call when we're in danger. Whether it's an officer from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Sesame Street, or Paw Patrol, children are taught when young that police are here to help, and they arrest the bad guys. Police procedurals and courtroom dramas typically enforce that narrative as well. Police investigate, and at the end, they arrest someone, and it's assumed that the person they arrest is the criminal, the bad guy. The trial is a formality, and if they happen to be acquitted, it's not because they didn't commit the crime. Occasionally, these shows have a storyline or story arc involving corrupt or violent police officers. But even then, bad cops are portrayed as outliers. Reality shows like Cops and Live PD show police in largely a positive light. Even most true crime podcasts reinforce the cops are good narrative. And I say that as a huge fan of true crime podcasts. Even mainstream news stories discuss incidents involving police, from investigations, manhunts, and arrests for crimes of various sorts, to civil incidents that might involve police officers in some way, from the perspective of individual officers or police departments, as if the police version of events is the version of events. But if you have good reason not to trust the police, why would you call them? And for a number of black Americans and other people of color who have had negative experiences with police, if something happens, they may not make that phone call. When I think of police and the idea of interacting with them, whether it's getting pulled over, being involved in a car accident, or contemplating the idea of calling them for whatever reason, it's not that I've convinced myself that every police officer I'm going to run into is bad, but my personal experiences the experiences of people I'm close to, and that of people I don't know who could very easily be someone I'm close to, all of that suggests that I don't know what cop I'm going to draw when it comes to any given incident. And for people we entrust with so much power, up to the power to ruin lives and take lives, policing as the luck of the draw is unacceptable. 
According to an article published by the National Academy of Sciences, written by social science researchers Frank Edwards, Edward Lee, and Michael Esposito, police in the United States kill far more people than police do in other advanced industrialized democracies. Black and Indigenous people of color, or BIPOC, are significantly more likely to be killed by police than white people, and Latino men are more likely to be killed by police than white men. And over the course of their lives, black men and boys have a 1 in 1,000 chance of being killed by police. To put that in perspective, imagine a pre-COVID game day at The Ohio State University where the Buckeyes are playing the University of Michigan. And the horseshoe is filled to capacity, which is about 100,000 people. Then imagine that 100 people in the stands are led to the 50-yard line and executed. Yeah. Many black and brown Americans don't trust the police for damn good reason, both due to experience and due to these facts regarding police. When you say, don't call the police, Alright, we won't, and often we might not, or at least we think long and hard before we do so. Don't complain about crime rates rising due to perpetrators not being put away. Trust matters. If witnesses and victims who know who a suspected perpetrator is don't trust the police enough to risk their lives talking to them, they will not cooperate. When you hear about crimes occurring with witnesses that all refuse to talk, it's not necessarily because they believe in shielding criminals. It's oftentimes because the police have demonstrated to that community that they are untrustworthy. Trust matters. And if police behave in a way that shows they cannot be trusted, they will not be trusted. It really is that simple. Number two. We don't want to lump the good cops in with the bad cops. This is a comment I tend to hear more from well-meaning white people. Well-meaning in the sense that these are typically people who care about racial discrimination and inequality and sincerely want to change it. In other words, this is something I typically hear from people who are discussing these issues in good faith and aren't out here dismissing the experiences of black and brown Americans who have had negative experiences with police. But there's still that social conditioning that police are the good guys. And when they hear activists, news reporters, and political commentators discuss police accountability and oversight, police demilitarization, not to mention more direct statements like ACAB, all cops are bad, and defund the police. The reaction is, well, wait a minute, yes, there are bad cops, but we don't want to generalize and gloss over the work of good cops by focusing on the bad apples. And I get that impulse to defend police. Look. I have a relative who's a police officer and has been for years. Chuckles has a friend who is a former police officer. We don't want to think of the people we care about, family and friends, as bad people simply because of their current or former profession. And as I've mentioned earlier, I have had varied interactions with police, including some positive interactions. And furthermore, most of us who don't want to come off as prejudiced against anyone don't want to stereotype groups. So I get it. I really do. That said, I have a couple of thoughts addressing this response. Firstly, how do we define good cops? Are good cops officers who don't murder unarmed and legally armed citizens who pose no clear and present danger to them? Are good cops officers who don't assault members of the community they interact with on a daily basis? Are good cops officers who make an effort not to racially profile those they are sworn to protect and serve? Or are good cops officers who are willing to keep their fellow officers accountable when they see them doing wrong things? And that's the question here. Who do we call good cops? If you're in, say, a normal office job and you observe your colleague embezzling money or sexually harassing a fellow coworker, and you don't say anything, that's not necessarily good behavior. And in police departments, where their jobs are more high stakes than most other jobs, and there is a lot of leeway given regarding police behavior, choosing not to keep your colleagues accountable is not the mark of being a good cop. With police brutality and racial bias in policing making appearances in police departments across the country, 
there is clearly a widespread issue that is not isolated to a few bad cops here and there. While there are instances of officers who turn in their colleagues for wrongdoing, it's not as often as it should be. And part of it is that all too often, being a good cop, especially when turning in particularly egregious behavior, comes at a hefty cost, including harassment, lack of protection from fellow officers, and even dismissal. There is a social and professional incentive to, at the very least, keep such abuses of power to themselves. And that gets into my second thought. The discussion of good cops versus bad cops is sort of besides the point. Too often, discussions in regards to systemic racism in police departments and other institutions become hyper-individualized. Yes, people are individuals, and many of us don't want to be seen as judging someone without knowing them personally. But unlike people who are grouped together by race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or gender identity, police officers are being grouped together by profession. You or I can't choose our skin color or what sex or sexes we're attracted to or the gender where we feel most at home. But police officers freely choose their profession. And professions come with their perks and their drawbacks, their pros and their cons. They decide to become cops. In certain jobs, certain professions have an institutional culture surrounding it. When I was a college instructor, I experienced the culture within academia, particularly social science academia. And if you're not familiar with it, what I can tell you is that the culture within academia is a lot different than the culture within your typical office environment. And I'm not even talking about politics. The political science program I was a part of in grad school included Republicans, Democrats, those on the right, center, and left. And when I taught at the University of Cincinnati and other institutions, there were faculty and students who varied in their political and social views. And you know what? That was okay. Not only because it was political science, so we enjoyed discussing politics, but because in academia, knowledge is respected, research is respected. And for the most part, discussions go beyond buzzwords and memes and into the realm of empirical evidence and reasoned logic. But there can also be an element of being in a different world than the masses. If you're not rooted in a world outside of academia, it becomes easy to become disconnected from the way people outside of that world live. Sort of like the old comparison of book smart versus street smart, but sometimes it's next level. And this disconnect will surely become more of an issue within the culture of academia as fewer tenure-track professor positions are made available and more and more colleges and universities turn towards cheaper adjuncts or part-time instructors. Unlike full-time professors, especially those who have achieved tenure, those who have job security and typically make salaries that place them comfortably in the upper middle class, adjuncts often face inconsistent offerings and without supplemental employment are generally hovering around poverty wages. And I'm not exaggerating. Adjuncts are typically given contracts to teach specific classes each term and are paid per course. If you just factor in class time, it seems like you're making decent money for a few hours, a few thousand here, a few thousand there, but it doesn't factor in the hours of course preparation, creation of assignments, exams and other in-class activities, office hours, and other times set aside for students outside of class, as well as grading. While many adjuncts do it for the love of teaching or for the enjoyment of their field of study, they also have to eat. And over the past couple of decades, colleges and universities have continued offering PhD programs, knowing that they're pumping out more PhDs than great paying, upwardly mobile positions within the academy available to them. To be fair, I was told in the beginning of my doctoral studies by professors within my PhD program that a number of graduates find work outside of academia and have presented that as a viable option. But there are many PhD programs that don't do that and openly look down upon academics who ultimately decide to find work outside of the college environment largely due to that life experience disconnect endemic in the ivory tower. That is one of the darker aspects of academic culture, and it deserves to be spotlighted and addressed. Like the academy, 
Law enforcement also has an institutional culture and is not immune to criticism. It's not something that can be fixed simply by adding more racial and ethnic diversity to the force. While the cop who kneeled on George Floyd's neck was white, two of the other officers involved were people of color, including a black officer and an Asian officer. Orlando Castile, the cop who killed him, was Latino. It's not simply white people being racist that's the issue. It's the culture of policing that's the issue. That's the thing about systemic racism. Systemic racism is not based on the assumption that everyone who is a part of that institution is racist. It's based on the idea that the culture of the institution is geared towards producing racially biased outcomes, regardless of the background or mindset of individuals making up that institution. And the idea that we should apply the boundaries we set for talking about ascribed characteristics, characteristics we're born with, or occur at some point through no fault of our own, that we should apply those same boundaries to institutions is highly problematic. That's what makes the idea of Blue Lives Matter so insulting and offensive, besides the fact that it's a mockery of Black Lives Matter. Blue Lives Matter is an attempt to shield police as an institution from criticism and substantive reform or reconstruction. It also places a chosen profession on the same level as race or other similar identities. The fact is that being a police officer involves a certain level of risk as you protect and serve. Those who can't handle that responsibility, the responsibility that comes with that kind of power, simply shouldn't do it. Police officers can hand in their badge and gun and walk away from their life as a cop. Black Americans can't walk away from being black. The discussion of good cops versus bad cops is largely meaningless because choices as a police officer cannot simply be chalked up to personal agency. Personal agency matters up to a point, but we can't separate that from the institutional culture, the system police officers live and work under. In other words, when we discuss law enforcement, hashtag not all cops is a distraction because we can't divorce the activities of individual police officers from the culture of police departments as an institution. Context matters. And it's the institution itself that leads to police brutality, over-policing, racial and ethnic profiling, and other disastrous outcomes. But Jay, I get it. We all know the system is broken. We really need to fix it. A lot of people, including some who have participated in the Black Lives Matter protests, would say that the system, the institution of law enforcement, is broken. I have probably said it at one point, and I'm sure I thought it. And if something is broken, we of course want to fix it. But when we discuss the culture of police departments across the country, it's important to understand that the system is not broken. It is working exactly as intended. Modern policing, as we now know it, is a relatively recent invention. While there have been laws as long as there have been civilizations, the laws were typically enforced by military regiments, posses consisting of families, neighbors, or townspeople, or private envoys. Prior to the development of professional police forces, if someone was, say, murdered, for example, a group would be rounded up to search for the suspected killer, or a bounty would be raised so that independent bounty hunters would search for the suspect and be paid if they produced the suspect to the sheriff, who was like a mayor, or the courts. If you thought your neighbor stole your cow, you would arm up, take some of your armed family members, and pay that neighbor a visit. The idea of an institutionalized, publicly supported civilian law enforcement agency entrusted to enforce domestic statutes, that's a relatively new concept. In the United States, professional police forces were created primarily to protect the life and property of elites against the perceived threat of the lower classes. Policing in the United States originated in the 1700s as slave patrols in the South. These slave patrols were paid, government-organized forces of white residents, primarily white men, 
separate from standing militias, whose job it was to enforce the slave codes, the laws governing black people, both slave and free, prior to the Civil War. The slave patrols were charged with the tracking down of runaway slaves, the quelling of slave uprisings, and the punishment of slaves deemed to have broken plantation rules. They also enforced the strict regulations placed on the lives of free black people in the South. The first slave patrols were organized in South Carolina and spread throughout the South to such a degree that by the beginning of the Civil War in 1861, every slave state had them. After the war, these slave patrols morphed into modern police departments, focused on enforcing Jim Crow racial segregation and controlling freed slaves, which had the effect of denying black Southerners equal rights and access to the political system. In the North, centralized municipal police departments began to develop in cities in the early to mid-1800s, starting with Boston in 1838, and later other cities such as New York City, Chicago, Cincinnati, and Philadelphia. By the 1880s, all major U.S. cities had police departments. These early police forces were comprised of white males and focused more on social control than crime control. What do I mean by that? Well, they weren't so concerned with the rise in actual crime, such as assaults by white Americans on immigrants and black people, which were happening with increasing frequency during this period. Northern police forces were developed in order to do the bidding of private businesses. The 1800s and early 1900s were a period of industrialization, particularly in northern cities, and this gave rise to big businesses who were making money hand over fist. These business interests wanted a stable and orderly workforce, a calm environment to conduct business, and the maintenance of what they referred to as the collective good, an abstract concept referring to what they believed would benefit society as a whole, which pretty much meant what would benefit them. Private security, such as the Pinkertons, existed at this point, but they focused more on actual crime, such as robberies, rather than social control. These businesses also didn't want to pay for this endeavor, so because they had a great deal of political influence, municipal police departments were created on their behest to essentially do their bidding. Part of that bidding was to redefine social control as crime control. According to Gary Potter, a criminal justice professor at Eastern Kentucky University, this redefinition involved casting the worker classes, such as poor whites, immigrants, and black people, as dangerous classes, biologically inferior and morally degenerate people prone to all manner of what they viewed as disorder, public drunkenness, disorderly conduct or hooliganism, political protests, and worker riots. Rioting was a big one. You see, riots targeting these businesses occurred among the working class due to excessively long hours and dangerous working conditions employees endured while working at these businesses. This was before the development of labor laws and labor unions. During this period, rioting was generally the only recourse wage earners had. Sure, they could quit their factory job, but if the factory across the street has horrible working conditions too, and so does the one that's down the street, what else were they going to do? This was before any social safety nets. Low-level workers were between a rock and a hard place, and they and their families still needed food, clothing, and shelter. But these businesses were more concerned with maintaining order and their bottom line than the health and safety of inferior workers. And their bought-and-paid-for police departments were here to help. A key way they did this was through proactive policing. In other words, instead of waiting to be called to the scene of a crime that has already occurred, they would patrol poor, working-class neighborhoods, seeking out those who they thought were breaking some ordinance or in some way out of line and targeting them for arrest and punishment. Sound familiar? Early police departments may have developed somewhat differently in the South and the North, but according to Potter, they had two defining characteristics, corruption and brutality. As time marched on, while police departments racially integrated, the culture remained much the same. Politicians created laws that criminalized all manner of nonviolent human behavior, primarily targeting the lower classes. 
these wars on crime extended throughout the 20th century and made Americans, particularly the less powerful in society, people of color, immigrants, women, especially those women who fell into those other categories, into criminals. And not only that, these wars on crime pushed nonviolent behavior underground, which led to an increase in actual violence. The criminalization of abortion prior to Roe v. Wade in 1973 made into criminals women who had sex, oh no, got pregnant and desired bodily autonomy, as well as the medical professionals willing to help them. Prohibition, the banning of the transport or sale of alcohol, made the mafia more powerful during the time the 18th Amendment was on the books, and also criminalized a number of immigrant groups, as well as black people and poor whites in the South. And the drug war led to a rise in international cartels and the mass incarceration of black and brown men for drug offenses, leading to the destruction of families and the decline of urban neighborhoods. All of these I discuss more in depth in previous episodes. If you'd like to learn more, I'll link to those episodes in the show notes. These are examples of efforts by politicians on a federal, state, and local levels to create laws that were race or class neutral on paper, but were created in order to criminalize a certain subset of the population, the poor, immigrants that were discriminated against at those points in time, and people of color, especially black Americans. Even to this day, Potter contends that policing has been tied not to crime, but to politics and economics. The system is, and has always been, working as intended. From the beginning, policing was never about protecting and serving all communities, but about protecting the way of life of the haves from any perceived threat from the have-nots. It was about keeping the lower rungs of society, including black Americans, in their place and reinforcing the existing social order. Today, law enforcement across the country has doubled down on the enforcement of these statutes, primarily on people of lower socioeconomic status. The overwhelming police presence in poor urban neighborhoods, especially those with a high percentage of residents being people of color. Stop and frisk policies that allow police to randomly search people on the street without a warrant. Cash bail. The profiling of black and brown people, whether it's a person of color in an urban neighborhood driving a nice car or entering a luxury apartment, or a person of color that is spotted in a mostly white neighborhood doing whatever. And yes, police brutality. Poor Americans, people of color, those who are targeted by these laws are more likely to encounter the police, and during these encounters are more likely to be viewed as criminals, not as law-abiding citizens, not even as innocent until proven guilty. And this is all in place to assuage the fears of middle and upper-class white Americans of any threat by people of color in the lower classes, by cracking down on the dangerous classes. And in that sense, the police are in fact doing their jobs. number of right-wing commentators, internet trolls, and white supremacists like to point to a Bureau of Justice Statistics study using FBI uniform crime statistics to show that black people are mostly being killed by other black people. You'll often hear it as black-on-black crime to say that police brutality and over-policing is a myth. The study also states in part that black Americans commit most of the murders, 52.5%, while only being 12 to 13% of the U.S. population. They use that study to support the idea that the targeting of black Americans by police is not due to racial bias in policing, but due to black people being inherently more criminal. So that means that ill treatment of black Americans by police is justified, and if you're black and you aren't criminal, oh well. By virtue of your race, you don't deserve the presumption of innocence, so just suck it up and comply. But let's take another look at that BJS study. Those who cite it to support anti-black racism overlook that this study also states that most violent crime, including an overwhelming majority of murders, are intraracial, meaning that the victim and perpetrator are both from the same race. So that includes not only black-on-black crime, but also white-on-white crime, and so on. And if we take that to its logical conclusion, if you're more likely to be, say, murdered by someone who looks like you, 
those middle and upper class white people who think that supporting over-policing in urban ghettos makes them more safe are sadly mistaken. But there are also inherent issues with the study itself. If you look at the methodology of the study, which you can find at the end, it states that the findings are based on law enforcement statistics, particularly arrests. The wording within the study and those who cite it assume that arrests equals guilt. In a brief from the Vera Institute of Justice, a think tank critical of policing, the authors point out that when reviewing the BJS statistics regarding race and arrests for crimes, for the most serious crimes of murder, rape, and robbery, these are also crimes with the lowest conviction rates. Besides the fact that if the BJS study is taken at face value, we essentially throw away any presumption of innocence since the study doesn't tell us the percentage of these people who have been convicted of said crimes, we don't know the details of the arrests. Are these people who have been identified through forensic evidence or solely by eyewitness testimony? Well, DNA is more conclusive if handled properly. TV shows like CSI and Forensic Files make us believe that more crimes are solved through DNA and other forensic evidence than is truly the case. Eyewitness testimony still drives a lot of cases, and eyewitness testimony has been demonstrated in studies as one of the most unreliable forms of evidence. This testimony is not immune to biases, including when it comes to racial and ethnic identification of perpetrators. This tendency to identify black suspects for crimes they haven't committed should not be discounted. It was the case in the Nancy Kerrigan attack. And the trope of the criminal blackmail has been weaponized in murder cases, such as the 1989 Charles Stewart case, where a Boston man murdered his pregnant wife and unborn son in cold blood, and the 1994 Susan Smith case, where a mother in South Carolina drowned her two children. In each of these cases, the murderers, both white, feigned being witnesses to the incidents involving themselves and their loved ones, and identified nebulous black men as the perpetrators. In the Stewart case, the crime scene was televised on a show Rescue 911, and it led to mass stop-and-frisk strip searches of black men in the Boston neighborhood of Mission Hill. And an innocent man was even jailed as a suspect for the crime before the truth was discovered. When you look at studies that evaluate racial bias in the criminal justice system, the driving source of racial bias is not in convictions or sentencing, but in arrests. When controlling for poverty, race is not a significant driver of crime. In other words, no race is more likely to commit crime. Poverty tends to be a greater driver of crime than race, not because being poor makes you inherently criminal either, but because in a capitalist society it's expensive to be poor and it becomes a lot easier to run afoul of the law when you're poor. You can't afford to register your car, but you have to get to work. And if you get pulled over, oops, you're in violation. You're homeless and on the streets, and the city decides to pass a law making loitering downtown illegal? Off the jail you go. And that's not even getting into dire circumstances and untreated mental illness that may lead impoverished people towards desperate, dangerous measures. Because in the United States, poverty and race are linked. What we may be seeing is, in part, a function of poverty. But because the study doesn't include wealth or income statistics, no one's talking about that possibility. When it comes to race, black people are much more likely to be arrested than white people, even if being accused of similar crimes. And we especially see this in the drug war. Rates of drug use and drug dealing between the races are nearly identical. But black Americans are much more likely to be arrested than white people. If you end up in the system, even if you're not convicted, it's nearly impossible to escape its clutches. The BJS study's authors do say that homicide isn't quite as underreported as other violent crimes, but if we're only counting arrests, what about homicides where arrests aren't made? It's not that we're unaware of the murder, but for one reason or another, arrests aren't made in those cases. For example, the white men in Georgia who allegedly hunted down and murdered black jogger Ahmad Arbery were initially not arrested for his killing. If the Arbery murder fell within the time frame of the BJS study, and the public outcry didn't lead to arrests of his alleged killers, this incident may not count. The authors also concede 
there's about a third of incidents that are part of the BJS study where race is not identified. That's a huge amount of missing data, and that's enough to call the results of the study into question. Now, let's talk about arrests a bit more. There's evidence to suggest that encounters with police are more a function of racial profiling than inherent black criminality. The Washington Post compiled a list of several studies in relation to policing. A subset of these studies focus on traffic stops and other police encounters. This list includes some national studies and several local-level studies. A couple of these studies stood out to me. In a recently published article in the journal Nature Human Behavior, the research team analyzed a data set with details of nearly 100 million traffic stops made in 21 state patrol agencies and 35 municipal police departments across the country. Taken together, the researchers found that black drivers were more likely than white and Latino drivers to be stopped by police, but the disparity was greatest during the day and dropped after dark, suggesting that it's more difficult to ascertain a motorist race once the sun goes down, especially if police officers see them at a glance driving by. When stopped, black and Latino drivers are more likely than white drivers to be searched. The threshold of suspicion that needs to be met in order for a motorist to be searched is lower for black and Latino drivers than white drivers. In other words, it takes less for a police officer to search black and Latino drivers that have been pulled over than white drivers. This study found that contraband was found on black and white drivers at equal rates, which is not surprising given that drug use is pretty much equal between blacks and whites. Latino drivers were less likely to have contraband in their possession than either group. In states where cannabis has been legalized, there has been a significant drop in searches overall, but the disparity in searches still persists. Another study, written by researchers Megan Stevenson and Sandra Mason, and published in the Boston University Law Review, focuses on disparities in misdemeanor charges nationally. Stevenson and Mason found in their research that rates of misdemeanor arrests per capita have generally declined since 1980. But black arrest rates have hovered around 1.7 times white arrest rates for misdemeanors the whole time. When broken down by crimes typically categorized as misdemeanors, black and white arrest rates for DUI, public drunkenness, and violation of liquor laws are pretty much the same and there's no significant difference. But the black arrest rate is at least twice as high as the white arrest rate for disorderly conduct, drug possession, simple assault, theft, vagrancy, and vandalism. The racial disparity is even wider when it comes to vice, such as prostitution and gambling. Black people are arrested five times as often as white people for prostitution and ten times as often for gambling. We don't typically talk about misdemeanor offenses because these are low-level offenses that typically involve fines and little to no jail time. And employers are less likely to ask for misdemeanor offenses on employment applications, meaning that unlike felonies, misdemeanors have a limited impact on job prospects and other day-to-day -day functions. But as I've discussed previously, arrests tend to drive racial disparities in the criminal justice system. And once you're in the system, it's hard to disentangle from it you'll always be on police radar. Also, the authors note that misdemeanors are typically pursued at the discretion of the police, and due process protections are rarely adhered to. Those charged also tend to proceed without legal representation. They point out that while some misdemeanor offenses, such as shoplifting and misdemeanor assault, are less serious versions of felony offenses, a number of others, like disorderly conduct, public drunkenness, prostitution, loitering, trespass, and vagrancy are offenses that are not universally embraced as crime and are often outgrowths of poverty, addiction, or mental illness. Stevenson and Mason contend that in many jurisdictions, misdemeanors function as a means of social control, focused primarily on keeping tight reins on the poor and people of color. When taken together, these and other journal articles the Washington Post compiled on policing and racial profiling told a relatively consistent story. Black people, as well as Latinos to a less consistent degree, are more likely than white people to be approached by police, 
in numbers grossly disproportionate to their percentage of their state populations or their propensity to commit crimes. Black and Latino people were more likely to be searched, cited, have police force used on them, and arrested, while white people were more likely to be let off with warnings. When pulled over in a vehicle, black and Latino motorists are more likely to be stopped on suspicion or on the pretense of minor vehicle defects, such as a burned-out taillight. This is despite evidence within these studies that white people were just as likely as black and Latino people to have broken laws, and that white people are more likely to be carrying contraband than black or Latino people if searched. Arrest rates are racially biased according to a number of studies and most available measures, and are therefore clearly an inaccurate way to measure criminality based on race. The BJS study's drawbacks are compounded by missing information. All this tells us is that the police, along with elected officials in the criminal justice system, have been creating their own reality. If you believe black people are inherently a threat, you enact laws targeting them, and you use police resources to focus primarily on heavily patrolling poor black neighborhoods, pulling over or otherwise stopping black people, arresting black people, beating them when they push back on their targeting or their treatment, and calling it resisting arrest, or murdering them in cold blood and calling it fearing for your life. Everything you've done has produced the results that support your belief. Rinse and repeat. The idea of black criminality is a creation of powerful elites to justify the wholesale violation of civil liberties, and this enables the system to continue chugging along exactly as intended. Next time, I'll discuss the militarization of police and what that means for civil liberties, especially as the United States continues its descent into authoritarianism. And now that we have an idea of what the issue is, what are some possible solutions? Can the police be reformed? Or does the scope of the policing and police brutality issues necessitate more comprehensive measures? And what does it mean to defund the police? We'll get into that next time. And unless something else super noteworthy comes up, which is bound to happen in the darkest timeline we're currently in, we'll jump back into the U.S. Middle East Relations series. Don't think I forgot. It's 2020. We're all living through it. I'm just glad you're here with me. Thank you so much for listening to Pastor Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstarpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing is completely free and you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't miss out. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars on the app of your choice and leave a review. And I tweet often, so follow me on Twitter at potstarpodcast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.